You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Captain Jared Brammer. Jared, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I asked you to come on uh, to The Spear because you were involved in the 2014-2015 uh, response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And against the backdrop of the current global coronavirus uh, pandemic, I think it's a really interesting story to share. But you were also prior enlisted uh, in the infantry uh, before your sort of current phase of your career. I wonder if you can just give listeners a little bit of background about you and and, and your uh, path into the Army. So I joined like a lot of people in my age uh, directly after September 11th. And as a young kid, 19 years old, went straight into the infantry, straight to airborne school and was lucky enough to go to the 173rd after that. Okay. Um, and But when was that? So... Uh, Ended up finishing airborne school in 2002, um, went to the 173rd in Italy in uh, late 2002, was there for about four or five months before making the jump into Iraq in 2003. Um, so you were in the army, you were enlisted for how long? Uh, I did 10 years enlisted. Uh, the first okay. four and a half were in the active duty. Then the rest of the time was in the Massachusetts National Guard while I went to college. Okay. And what did you go to college for? I have an undergraduate degree in biology and a master's degree in biomolecular science. Okay. So you understand things like COVID-19 and, and Ebola and probably a different level than most of us do. Uh, somewhat. Okay. Uh, bi biology is not my specialty, but uh, it's where I've fallen in a few times in the army so far. Okay. So let's talk about uh, Ebola and, and your role in it. As you said, you were uh, involved in the in the response to it in, I think it was 2014, 2015. And, and again, it's an interesting story uh, in and of itself, but uh, especially against this current sort of coronavirus backdrop, I think um, it maybe takes takes on a, a different level of, of uh, relevance. So can you tell me a little bit about that deployment? So uh, I, before getting up there, I was in North Carolina and I had about three days to get up to Aberdeen Proven Grounds to meet up with the first area medical laboratory. We went over to Liberia to set up four different laboratories that were further out into the country. The main effort was in Monrovia, where the heaviest portion of the, of the infected cases were. 
And that was run by USAMRID, which was the library lab, and then they also had another lab on the island clinic up there. And that's where they were running hundreds of tests a day. The problem with Liberia at the time was it took so long to get a test from the outlying towns back to Monrovia. Roads weren't um, roads weren't very passable. It was a wet season. It could take days to get a sample from a small remote village back to uh, Monrovia for testing. So our unit was actually set up, sent out to send to set up four smaller diagnostic laboratories. The one I I commissioned and ran was in Tapita, Liberia. And I ran that for five months with two laboratory technicians with me. And we also had two MPs for uh, security as well. Wow. So it's a, I mean, it's a small team, five, five U.S. personnel. Yes, it was five of us. One officer and the rest were enlisted. Is that about the size of the other labs as well? Yes. Well, all of the AML, all the first AML labs were like that. We were very small, small organized, small teams. Um, Each team consisted of an officer, two enlisted. laboratory technicians, and then two MPs as well. Okay. Um, what does the timeline look like? You said, for, well, first of all, you said you only had about three days to get up to Aberdeen. So I wasn't in the unit when everything started. At the time, I was the chief of microbiology at Womack Army Medical Center down at Fort Bragg. Okay. And they needed to bring on one more one more scientist to, so they could so they could support the four lab mission that they wanted to run. So they needed one additional scientist, and I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time with the right background and uh, was brought up to Aberdeen. So I had to PC or I had to leave Fort Bragg. Luckily, my wife was very understanding. I told her that I had to go and that she had to leave her job, find a house up in Maryland, move, find another job while I was deployed. And it was great for support that way. Well, so you get into, so you, you have three days to get up to, to Maryland. And then, I mean, was it almost immediately onto an airplane? Uh, no, it was about five days. So okay. like anything, anything else in the army, you can't just jump into doing something. Mm-hmm. So I mean, once I reported to Aberdeen, the first thing we had to do is we, I had to, I had to show competency and proficiency on doing the, the level of testing that we were going to do in Liberia as well as um, utilizing the personal protective equipment, putting it on correctly, taking it off correctly without contaminating yourself or somebody else. So we did that. That took about two days of USAMRID, as well as I had to integrate with my team and integrate with the other officers and enlisted and my brand new command that I didn't know before showing up, as well as the equipment. And then, uh, so five days later, then you get on an aircraft and head presumably directly to Liberia. Yep. About it was five days later, we were all on the airplane heading over. So as you mentioned, uh, you were prior enlisted, you were part of the 173rd Airborne, which is a, you know, is a unit that maintains itself at a high level of readiness, um, and is sort of prepared for a short notice deployment like this did. Did that experience of um, of not only being prior enlisted, but specifically being in the 173rd, um, make you feel a little bit more prepared or equipped to deploy on a pretty short notice for uh, for this pandemic response? I I do believe so. Um, the the unit I was in the first area medical lab, they can move incredibly fast and be out the door within a day or two, but the 
the ability to leave North Carolina, leave my wife, get up to Maryland, go through the box checks, grab a new team and be out the door. Uh, I don't think it would have been as easy if I didn't have multiple deployments before that and spent a lot of time in the field and been away from my family several times beforehand. But I think that's something that definitely uh, young soldiers, especially young officers, are going to have to prepare themselves for somehow beforehand because it's going to happen. Did you feel, um, when you got on that aircraft, did you feel prepared uh, for what you were going to face over over the course of the deployment? Yes, I did. I don't think I would have been selected um, as the additional scientist to go if I wasn't prepared. Um, they were very, they're very choice with who they brought on the mission as far as um, backgrounds, experience in the laboratory, training, not just within the army, but training with civilian partners like the CDC. And more generally, um, you know, you had done combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Did those, um, did those experiences make you feel more prepared for this deployment? Uh of course. Um, anytime you go through a quick deployment, um, Iraq for me was rather quick. Uh, when the war started back in back then, everybody kind of knew like, oh, we're going to go, we're going to go. But we didn't get the word until it was time to go. And then the base was put on lockdown. And then we waited around for a, about a week. And then we got on the plane before the jump. Um, Liberia was very similar. I got the call. And to close shop down in North Carolina, I went and told my leadership and they had to help me actually get out of North Carolina in time, you know, turn in all the equipment down there, go through all of the different um, out processing steps that you have to do mm-hmm. when you leave in one base to go to another. So I think I, I think previous times in the army definitely prepared me for that. And actually, and both deployments, garrison, leaving other units before, I knew that it would be a headache. I knew that there would be hassle trying to get out of Bragg on time. So I asked for help from senior leadership. So the brigade commander actually walked me station to station to make sure we got out of there on time so we didn't miss the bird going to Liberia. Okay. So you land in Liberia, and um, did you know at that point that you your your job would be to go set up one of these four clinics? Yes, I knew that um, before leaving North Carolina. And did you have a clear sense of, I guess, what the overall mission was? So the mission was pretty straightforward. And I'd say that I had an easier time adapting because it wasn't my first deployment. Uh, By now, this was, I deployed twice to combat Iraq and Afghanistan. And I did a few other laboratory deployments to to, um, South Korea at the time. So the mission in front of me was pretty straightforward. It was broken down well by the command. I'd say the biggest thing was getting, getting feet on the ground in Liberia and then finally just trying to get out to the location to set up the laboratory. Okay. And, and, and the laboratory that you set up, it was one of, one of four, I guess. Um, you know, when, what was its purpose or its function? I mean, I, I know, um, you know, it was testing obviously, but I wonder if you can explain, uh, maybe in a little bit more detail. Yeah, so the main purpose of the laboratory is to provide diagnostic confirmation of whether or not somebody has an infection. Um, And we were in a city called Tapita, and to take a car or a motorcycle from Tapita back to Monrovia at the time, it was taking days. So the idea was we could take over 
uh, this area and do all the testing for the surrounding villages and get an answer back to those physicians within hours rather than within days. And that way, if a case did come up positive, then you could get other partners like the World Health Organization, the CDC, into the fold so they could do contact tracing at a much quicker rate into these villages rather than waning the three or four or five days to get the answers back from Monrovia. Okay. Um, and how soon after you set up the lab were you performing tests? How long, how long did it take to sort of get into a battle rhythm? So it took me three days from the time that me, my team and I, as well as our equipment, hit our final destination, Tapita. It took us three days before we started running. And that was just because we needed to out the rooms that we took over uh, weren't really conducive to the laboratory testing. So we had to construct a wall. We had to seal off all the windows in the rooms as well as duck in air conditioning for one of our rooms because the equipment couldn't run at the hot temperatures of Liberia. When you said you had to do that, you mean you guys personally or you had local contractors or? No, it was us and a small team of engineers that came with us. Uh, mm -hmm. So we did have some local contractors for some things, mainly um, mainly fuel delivery is what we use local contractors for. But as far as the construction, that was all done by our engineers. Okay. So once you get set up, what is a what is a typical day uh, running the Tapita Lab look like? So it was a uh, kind of your typical army day. So we were out in the middle of Liberia. So when everybody else was back in Monrovia, they had chow hall tents, latrines. You know what you would normally see on an on an army base. We were out in the middle of nowhere. We had a, we actually rented a small, um, uh, a small house that was outside the hospital that we were working at. And we had a shower. We had two bedrooms. So my enlisted got the bedroom. I ended up sleeping in the kitchen because we didn't eat the local food and it was an additional room. So we'd wake up in the morning, we'd go down to the laboratory we do the same standard things you do in the army, which is make sure all your all your equipment's maintained, check your supplies. Uh, big thing is we had to keep cold chain for all of our reagents, so the freezers and the refrigerators had to stay going all day long. But there's no electricity where we were, so constantly keeping generators up was one of the battles that we had to deal with between the, the five of us. But meaning what had to keep them up, meaning what they would break down and you had to fix it or you had to make sure that they were, you had a ready stock of fuel. Well, both. So one, you have to keep a ready stock of fuel and you have to, we had to project out. And I think this was the, the fuel conversation would really lend well into something I'd like to talk about how to keep the NCOs on, on a professional development course, but fuel, it would take anywhere from five days to 14 days to get a fuel shipment. So mm -hmm. you're running generators 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you have two generators, so you can run one, let one rest, and then switch them off so you can do maintenance. But in order to keep that fuel up, there was no running out of fuel was not going to be an option. Because if we ran out of fuel, the refrigerators and freezers would eventually go down, and then we would lose our ability to do testing, which was not an option. So... 
once you did finally get into um, into this battle rhythm, how many tests a day uh, were you guys doing in, in your lab? Yeah, so that would change per day. Some days you would get one or two tests, and some days you would get 15 or 20. And what was that dependent on, whether or not it was a, um, I guess, a slow day or a busy day? So that's all the, um, they called them ETUs, Ebola treatment units, as well as the local hospital. Taffeta had a, a, a very robust hospital. But we were also getting samples in from outlying, um, outlying villages. Uh, we would take any sample that was dropped off at us at the time. Our, our criteria was if it came to us, we would test it, and we'd send the answer back to the people that got it to us, as well as sending it um, up the Army chain so that they could do all their tracing as well. Um, so if a sample came in, uh, uh, it didn't matter what time of day for our lab. We had a rule that that we all decided if a sample came in, we we're going to test it immediately. And on average, depending on how many tests came in at one time, we would usually have a sample done within two to four hours with the answer back to the clinician. So you're, you're testing samples, uh, not, you're not testing patients. Uh, so you, you're not really at risk, um, you know, or in, at, you know, serious risk of, of transmission from someone who is sick. Um, but we've all seen pictures. There is, you know, you wore protective gear. So w- was there a risk and what was the level of the, the risk involved? Um, absolutely. Uh, just like any laboratory di- diagnostic, there's always risk. That's why we have to wear our personal protective equipment. We had to do our perform the sample testing in biological safety cabinets. So you have environmental protections as well as your own protections with the Tyvek suit and the PAPR, regular glove changes, decontamination procedures with uh, ethanol and bleach. Um, so the, the risk is definitely was definitely there. And you just have to trust trust the training that you put into your soldiers as well as the equipment that you're keep upkeeping to keep you and your and your soldiers safe. So you know, a, a civilian lab, um, any any lab like this is going to have um, certain measures in place. They, you know, fall I guess under the the sort of rubric of of workplace safety. Um, you guys are a military unit, um, so in some ways, you know, the paradigm is one of force protection too. I'm just curious if um, if that resulted in any differences in terms of the specific measures you put in place to try to avoid infection because you did have that, like I said, a, a military force protection paradigm in play. You are expect. I don't know if I would say that we do it any different than a civilian lab um, because everybody's going to approach uh, a virus like Ebola, especially if you're in the field testing it in the field like we were. Everybody's going to approach it with the same... Um, narrow focus, okay, to make to make sure that you're keeping yourself safe as well as the people around you. People that are walking outside the lab, you want to make sure that there's no risk of that, of contaminating them. Uh, so the procedures that we use are not any different than what you would see at the state public health labs or the CDC or just the regular hospitals that deal with that are that are part of the laboratory response network that deal with VSL three agents as well. So this was a five month deployment. Um, when you set out on it, was was that what you were planning for, or anticipating, or did you have? I mean, did you have a an, a, an expected redeployment date? Uh, we uh, we were planned for a little bit longer than that. I think we planned for a year. So being able to 
get everything under control within the five months and go home within five months. That was, that was nice. That was a little unexpected. I was expecting to be there longer. And were there, were there I guess, were there benchmarks in place or, you know, in, in military terms, were there objectives to achieve uh, that once you did would result in you redeploying um, ahead of schedule? Yeah. So I believe the, I believe the desire to pull us out was they wanted the whole country to go two incubation cycles without a positive test. So that would be uh, 42 days without a positive test. So once we hit that, that's when the determination was to uh, pull out. Um, and my lab, we actually turned that over to a non-government organization that continued to run that laboratory for uh, a while afterwards. Okay. So you earlier you mentioned um, briefly NCO development, and you know this is you were in a very unique sort of type of unit, um, pretty fundamentally different for a lot of reasons and in a lot of ways than um, more conventional units. Uh, so I wonder if there are some sort of lessons. You know, you talked about NCO development, but I wonder if there are some you know just general lessons about leadership that you learned from this kind of small unit um, uh, uh, environment with a unique rank structure uh, that you could share. Yeah. So I think. Uh... Liberia opened my eyes to some some aspects of the officer world that I didn't really know before showing up there. And it kind of gives me a little bit more respect for the lieutenants that were over me in Iraq. So when we finally got out there and I was running just a small team of myself and four enlisted, I found it to be incredibly lonely as a person because you don't really have a friend at this point. Sure, you can be friendly with your soldiers and you can have a good time and you can laugh and joke, but you don't have a friend. You don't have a confidant. You don't have somebody that you can go and complain to at the end of the day. So this was a pretty big eye-opening eye-opener for me as far as how to be an officer and what to do. And then I started to notice that my soldiers were starting to get bored. And I didn't really understand why. And I realized that because all they were doing was testing Ebola samples and working out. But I wasn't allowing them to be NCOs. So there were certain aspects of the day that I was doing that I had to stop doing and give it to them. And it was simple stuff like who was tracking the fuel, who is tracking the medical supplies we have, who's sending the reports back to command to get the fuel medical supplies, who's keeping track of the MREs. So once I pushed all of what we call the beans and bullets to the soldiers, which I should have done day one, but I was just too ignorant as a young officer to do this right away. It completely changed the dynamic of our lab. And it really let all four of my soldiers grow dramatically in that five months that they were there. Um, you know, that's a really interesting point. It's a really important point to think about leadership. Um, that probably was, you know, a, a lesson that was more readily available to you given the environment um, and the, you know, the circumstances then, then maybe it sometimes is, but, uh, you know, in addition to, I imagine that it, you know, improved the unit's performance during the course of that deployment, but probably also had some long-term, um, you know, effects on their own development. So, um, you know, but, but what was it that it was that, that made that so important, um, and such a priority for you when you, when you came to that realization? So I think the idea of, pushing as much applicable tasks to my soldiers at the time. Um, I just would really like to stress how important that was towards just the morale of the lab in general. Uh, if we didn't do that, I don't think the lab would have run where it did. And by doing it, 
my lab had an amazing success story afterwards. Two of those soldiers ended up commissioning directly afterwards, both in the science fields. And two others went into further specialties in the laboratory world as NCOs, and they're now running their own laboratories for the army. Um, I want to, I want to, sh- I guess, shift course a little bit and just ask you then a question about chain of command, because um, again, you know, I keep reiterating, I guess, that this is kind of a unique experience in the army uh, in terms of the type of unit, the type of mission. Um, you have a military chain of command, obviously, as, as you always do, but you're also coordinating testing and, and responding um, to requests from, you know, a variety of, of um, sources of, of material to be tested that are not always from the Army as well. Does that, did it make the uh, the chain of command, I guess, question any more complicated? Yes uh, and no. So uh, the no aspect is that we did have a very clear chain of command Army side. So at the time, 101st was running the operation back in Monrovia. They had command of the theater. My unit was a very small unit. The First Area Medical Laboratory has a, um, an 06 commander, but there's only about 35 individuals in the unit total. So you know exactly who you're going to in that organization to get from your lowest private straight to, the, to, a, to a full bear colonel. And was the entire unit deployed at the time? The colonel was, yes. The whole unit wasn't. Um, okay. We did leave a rear detachment back in Aberdeen. Okay. Uh, but the majority of the unit was deployed. And then uh, that information went to 101st very quickly. So theater level, everything was fast. As far as outside of that and the government officials and non-government officials that we dealt with on a regular basis, you didn't always know who you were giving your results back to. Your sample would come in and you'd have a contact number from some physician, a Liberian physician or a non-government official physician that was over there with, with one of the volunteer organizations. You were sending the results to them, but at the same time, you were sending your results back to the chain of command so we could track everything. Okay. And I guess opening it up more broadly, um, any other general... Um sort of things you took from this experience, from this deployment? It's the experience was, it makes you just kind of have faith in the army in general. So you have faith in your equipment, you have faith in your soldiers, everybody's together doing everything. You have a very regimented way of doing stuff. Everybody stays safe. Everybody comes home. Okay. Um, well, I kind of want to then circle back to, you know, the, the current context with the, uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, is there Are there similarities that make lessons from the Ebola response applicable, or is it really too different for a variety of reasons? Uh, it's going to be different because really what it comes down to at this point with where we are now in the COVID-19 is it's identifying current positive cases, doing contact tracing, testing those people, and getting a handle on where the disease is going. So the Liberian mission was a little bit different. It was That was there to contain it in country and not let it go anywhere. Um, so so, so uh, we've seen that in some states, uh, National Guard units have been uh, mobilized uh, under state active duty. Um, they've been uh, activated under Title 32, uh, on essentially that brings in some federal... Uh, involvement. 
uh, in three states. There have been calls for mobilizing the Corps of Engineers. Clearly, the military is part of this response, specifically with respect to you know what you did in 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 Liberia. Um, is there anything that the Army brings to the table uh, for for that sort of um, to play that role in the response? So, the Army bring it's not just I wouldn't say this is just testing in general, but the Army brings a little bit more latitude that civilians generally don't have. So a soldier can work eight hours straight. A soldier doesn't need to get a 15-minute break outside. Um, general, our chain of command and orders that come down can keep an organization very streamlined and very focused. So the, by utilizing National Guard and Army, you can do a lot of great things with that. Um, Testing-wise, we're not... It's, it's not a matter of we have better equipment or we have better people or we have access to stuff that other people don't have access to. Uh, bringing soldiers on gives you that extra bit that you can do more with a little bit of less. Okay. And, and, you know, I mentioned people are naturally looking for um, sources of, of lessons learned that are apl- applicable maybe uh, to the current crisis. You can call it that, which is why we're talking about Ebola. Um, I think people are maybe also looking for sources of optimism. Um, and, you know, ultimately the Ebola response was a success. Um, so I wonder if you can kind of speak to that, whether or not there are any sort of um, signs of, you know, reasons to be optimistic when we look back at Ebola. I can give some one hope of optimism and everything else. So our team, like I said, we are in the middle of, middle of the, the country. We were not on a base. We were living amongst the local population. We were living amongst the population that was infected. Additionally, there was um, endemic levels of many other diseases like malaria, Marburg. uh, And we did live there for five months without getting sick. Nobody spiked a fever. Nobody so much as got a stomach bug. Um, We stuck to our MREs and our water that we came with. And the idea of social distancing that we're going through now with the country, that's exactly what we did in Liberia. We didn't shake people's hands. We kept three, four feet apart from everybody. We constantly were going to meetings with local officials, but nobody got sick because we stuck to the, um, the force protection that we knew we needed to stick with. So people were constantly washing our hands. Everybody checked each other's temperatures every day. Everybody made sure that everybody else was taking their malaria pills. So with the right precautions, you can keep yourself safe. Okay. Uh, well, I think that's as, as, as good a note as any to, uh, to kind of wrap up on here. So uh, I really want to thank you for, for joining this episode of The Spear. Um, it is a, you know, it's a really unique operational experience. Um, and it's also, you know, a very relevant story. So uh, I'm, I'm really grateful that you were, you were willing to share it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.